Yo, San Francisco, Jay and Silent Bob are going to show you their Halloweenies. October 28th at the Castro Theater. Dress up and party down with a costume party, prizes, and a live podcast recording with Jay and Silent Bob Get Old. Then, scope out the controversial thriller Red State, followed by a Q&A with writer-director Kevin Smith. Laugh, then shit your pants in suspense with a Halloween extravaganza double feature, Jay and Silent Bob Live and Red State, October 28th at the Castro Theater in San Francisco. Double-click for tickets for this and all Smodco shows at csmod.com. Yo, Solana Beach, California. Guess who's gonna get old live? Not old as in... Christ on a popsicle stick, this is boring. I'm talking about Jay and Silent Bob get old, no fuckers. Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes are coming to the Belly Up Tavern on November 22nd. Don't miss the debauchery, Iggy B. Jay and Silent Bob get old, recording their podcast live at the Belly Up Tavern in Solana Beach, California on November 22nd. Get your tickets for this and all other Smodco shows at csmod.com. Red State DVD and Blu-ray available now at coopersdell.com. Get exclusive bundle packages featuring posters, soundtracks, t-shirts, signed scripts, wardrobe used in the film, and a chance to be a guest on air with Kevin Smith via Skype. Red State DVD and Blu-ray exclusive bundles now at coopersdell.com. Smirch alert, smirch alert, motherfucker smirch alert. Go to smodcast.com slash smerchandise to get your official Jay and Silent Bob iPhone 4 cases from Casemate. Choose from three different snoogerific designs. We got soft ones and hard ones. Hey, I'm talking about the cases, bitch. All emblazoned with your favorite Smodco icons, Jay and Silent Bob. Snag your iPhone 4 case for $39.99 and protect the precious smodcast.com slash smerchandise yo Canada Jay and Silent Bob are gonna be royally mounting you December 7th in Vancouver December 8th Edmonton December 9th Calgary December 10th Saskatoon and December 11th Winnipeg their comedic maple syrup's gonna be gushing all over your timbits. How's that for a visual, eh? Jay and Silent Bob get old. Live in the Great White North. Linky links to tickets at smodcast.com slash get old in Canada. Hey, Eldborg, Iceland. On November 11th, Kevin Smith will be inside you. Kev is bringing his famous Q&A to Eldborg Main Hall, talking movies, comics, sex, taking a shit, whatever you want to ask about. Hilarity will ensue. Kevin Smith, live at the Eldborg Main Hall in Eldborg, Iceland, on November 11th. Links to tickets for this and all Smodco shows at csmod.com. So, you're saying, yo, sir, dude, I love sir, and I want to show the world. Wear your sir love with our official t-shirts, biatch. Fishies have no eyes. Let us fuck. Jay and Silent Bob get old. The Garmy. There's also posters, action figures. There's so many to choose from. 
Grab your smirch at smodcast.com. Scroll down and click on Smerchandise. Catch live video clips of Jay and Silent Bob Get Old and Hollywood Babylon on the Kevin Smith blog for the Huffington Post. Huff.to slash Kevin Smith blog. That's Huff.to slash Kevin Smith blog. Want early access to tickets for Smodcast Internet Radio's metric fuckton of live shows? Join Smodcast. For just $4.99 a month, you'll get CD-quality audio of every podcast you hear on Sir ad-free. It's like watching porn without having to fast-forward through that goddamn plot. You'll also get bonus video content and other badass exclusives. Smodcast. Where Smodcast goes save for pay. All the deets at Smodcast.com. This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream.
what you do, you got to shake that thing. Come on, baby, shake that thing. Just shake that thing, shake your tail, baby. Do the mess around, baby. Get now lower, baby. Do the shorty, shorty challenge, baby. Do that little, little chucking, baby. Yeah, like how you're chucking, baby. Give me some of that chucking, baby. That is Shake That Thing from Tin Pan Band. Uh, I found them while cruising through Central Park in March. I was just walking around and they were playing there on that big promenade uh, with horns and all sorts of things. Really a lot of energy. Fantastic. And I got one of their CDs and uh, been able to play them. Kind of reminds me, I feel like kind of Harry Shearer when I play that, you know, because he's into the whole New Orleans thing. And of course, Le Show is something that I kind of based part of this show on just with the music, playing the music in between stuff. Um, because, you know, music's so damn important. So everyone, hello, welcome, welcome, welcome. It's uh, still October from what I understand. And uh, <laughs> it's October 20th today. And uh, welcome to the show. I'm in a mellow place. I've been a little depressed this week. And just about everyone I've talked to has been in some sort of weird, dark space. So it's something's in the collective psyche going on. You know, I, I don't know what it is. I really honor depression in a way because um, depression's just one aspect of, of who we are and how our psyche works. You know, sometimes we're very active and we're very extroverted and willing to go out into the world. And then, of course, the yin and yang of it, the yin part is the coming inward, going into the interior and stillness. And this is actually a time of year when that kind of makes sense. The days are getting shorter and we're heading towards winter. And, um, you know, it's a time for kind of being still and, and not being so active. So I've been just kind of weirdly depressed this week. And I mean, yesterday, I don't think I really got anything done productive. I mean, not like the way the world would think productive. Of course, I felt it was productive because I felt kind of very connected to my soul. And that's that's important to me. And one of the things I was uh, doing yesterday was, you know, I mean, I wasn't even really interested in Twitter and stuff like that, but I was kind of on the internet. And um, every once in a while, I check out a website by a gentleman named Stephen Pressfield. He wrote a book called The War of Art, which is all about resistance. And he's a writer. It's, it's, I mean, it's probably one of the most amazing books I've ever read about really facing up to what resistance is. And, um, as I've shared with you before here the last few weeks, I've been off of sugar and now off of alcohol uh, for over a week, uh, I think two weeks sugar and over uh, easily over 10 days for alcohol. And, and not because I'm crazy or anything or I need to go to rehab, but I was finding that my addictive personality, like the, uh, the, the sugar and the alcohol were kind of running my life a little bit and running my thought stream. And so I came across a, um, a, a little bit of a, article here on Stephen's website about 
Addicts and Art. And you know what? I never do anything like this. So I thought I was just going to read this and put it out there. And uh, because I was thoroughly intrigued by it. So this is by Stephen Pressfield. You can find him at Stephen Pressfield. He's uh, S-T-E-V-E-N, StephenPressfield.com. And he's got something called Work It Out, Working Wednesdays, or uh, I can't remember. Anyway, I'll find it in a minute for you. Anyway, here's his little mini little essay he wrote. Have you ever noticed that addicts are often extremely interesting people? Addiction itself is excruciatingly boring in that it's so predictable. The lies, the evasions, the transparent self-justification and self-exoneration. But the addict himself is often a colorful and compelling person. His story reads like a novel packed with drama, intrigue, conflict, and heartbreak. If the addict's drug of choice is alcohol, the narrative is frequently one of, frequently one of job loss, domestic abuse, divorce, abandonment of children, bankruptcy. If class one narcotics are the culprit, the tale often includes crime, the law, violence, and even death. Of course, we fallible mortals can be addicted to a lot of things, to love, to sex, to worship of our children or parents, to dominance, to submission. We can even be addicted to ourselves. Check the manual under self-iconization, Charlie Sheen, Donald Trump. Such individuals can be absolutely fascinating at the same time they're boring as hell. So what's the connection between addiction and resistance? The pre-addictive individual experiences a calling, a calling to art, to service, to honorable sacrifice. In other words, positive aspiration, a dream, a vision of the higher self he or she might be. The intimation of this calling is followed immediately, as we know, by the apparition of resistance. The dragon rears its head, fear, self-doubt, self-sabotage. What makes this moment so precarious is that most of us are unconscious in the event, both of our aspiration and of our resistance. We're asleep. We know only that we feel bad. Something's wrong. We're restless. We're bored. We're angry. We're seeking something grand, but don't know where to look. And even if we did, we're so terrified and so paralyzed that we can't take a step. Up next, a drink, a woman, a habit. Addiction replaces aspiration. The quick fix wins out over the long, slow haul. Addiction becomes the evil twin of our calling to service or to art. That's why addicts are so interesting and so boring at the same time. They're interesting because they're called to something, something new, something unique, something that we watching can't wait to see them bring forth into manifestation. At the same time, they're boring because they never do the work. Why is this so boring? Because what exactly does boring mean? Something that's boring goes nowhere. It travels in a circle. It never arrives at its destination. The circular nature of addiction is what makes it so excruciating. No traction is ever gained. No progress is ever made. We're stuck on the same endlessly repeating track. That's what makes it like hell. The critical point is the link between resistance and addiction, though. When, for whatever reason, you and I cannot overcome the forces of self-sabotage that block us from following our calling, the next easy step is to seek relief from the pain, the shame, and the self-reproach we feel by submerging ourselves in a form of substance-induced oblivion or self-abandonment that travels under the name of addiction. Wow. Heavy fucking shit, right? 
this is like, this so called to me. He put so many pieces together in my head about that really, really that precarious place he talks about where we have this big vision and yet we, we can't take the big leap. And, and of course, you know, the daily grind of who, who we, who we know we can be, what this world can be and how far away it seems from where we are at or where the world is at right now. And sometimes it just seems so much easier to just, you know, have the drink, have the sugar, have the whatever it is, whatever your thing is, <laughs> and, uh, and just numb oneself. And, uh, you know, I, it's, it's interesting, you know, I, I'm a certified life coach, and I haven't been doing a lot of coaching lately, but this is why I coach. And, and this is why I love working with people, because it's helping people across that little gap. I kind of think of it as like the synapse gap, you know, it's like the, the little electricity that has to travel from the what is it, the axon to the dendrite or whatever it is, uh, you know, it has to jump across. And it's it's like it, it doesn't jump across sometimes. And I love helping people make the jump, make the leap. And uh, it's funny, though, sometimes I can't do it for myself. You know, sometimes we need help from another. So, uh, you know, if you're if you're out there and you're you're kind of battling addiction, getting bored with your own story about it. I mean, that's what happened with me with kind of sugar and alcohol. It was like every night it was like, Ooh, can't wait to have the drink because that's going to solve the problem. It doesn't solve anything. <laughs> Ooh, I want, I want the whole brownie because that's going to make me feel better. Yeah. For the next three minutes while I'm eating it. But in the long run, it don't make me feel better. What does make me feel better is actually when I'm not going there and I'm waking up in the morning and I say to myself, Oh, wow, I didn't I actually took care of myself last night and I didn't put those chemicals in my body. And, uh, and that feels good, you know, but it didn't help my depression yesterday. It's complicated people, you know, it's really fucking complicated. <laughs> so I'm thinking about maybe next year jumping back into my coaching practice and, um, actually building a practice again and, and getting, getting some people and helping some people out in the world. So I'm just kind of putting it out there, you know, why not? out into the Twitter sphere and out into the podcast sphere and uh, all of that. So um, I think we're going to play uh, another song here in a second. And then when we're back, uh, oh, actually, we're not going to play a song. It's, well, it's not really a song. I'm going to play a little piece by my friend Dylan Brody, who uh, is a fantastic storyteller. Um, uh, what does he call himself? The purveyor of word, wit and words or something. Oh, God, oh, he's going to kill me for getting that wrong. Anyway, um, because I just did a little, you know, read the little essay from Stephen Pressfield. And by the way, you can find him online at stephenpressfield.com. Uh, this is a little piece by Dylan Brody called, I like to support the arts. Those of you familiar with my work will know that many, and really, who isn't? <laughs> Many of my stories can be lengthy and heavy and multi-textured shades of gray, like the prominent proboscis of the ponderous pachyderm. This first piece, to maintain the mammalian metaphor, is little more than a bit or two of gerbil fuzz, a bit or two of verbal jazz. It is a twist of the wit, a trick of the tongue, a tantalizing taste of linguistic terpsichore. It is a, a pithy parcel of prosodic prestidigitation, if you will. And if you won't, you're a bunch of anti-semantic bastards. <laughs> I like to support the arts. On my way home, I stopped at a convenience store to buy milk for my morning coffee, ice cream for my wife. On the way in, I was approached by an unemployed magician. 
He had the haunted eyes of a hungry hound. He said, I got a quarter in my pocket. I can make it disappear. I got a quarter in my pocket. I can make it disappear. I said, show me. I swear to you, all he did was snap his fingers. He said, it's gone. I said, where did it go? He said, check your pocket. I checked my pocket, and sure enough, there, amongst all my other loose change, a bright, shiny quarter. I said, how do I know this is yours? He said, check the date. I said, it's from 1994. He said, that's mine. I returned it to him. I said, show me again. He said, I never repeat myself. I never repeat myself. I said, show me another. He said, I will need a $10 bill. I said, all I have is a 20. He said, that will do. I handed him a $20 bill. He folded it up tight right in front of me. No abracazam, no alacadabra. When he unfolded it again, it was a five. He returned it to me. I said, that's amazing. Change it back. He said, if I could change fives into 20s, I wouldn't be out here working for tips. I said, I'm sorry. I didn't know I was supposed to tip you. I like to support the arts. I gave him the five. He thanked me for my patronage. I went into the convenience store. I bought milk for my morning coffee. I bought ice cream for my wife. As I came back out, he was approaching another man in the parking lot. He said, I got a quarter in my pocket. I can make it disappear. I got a quarter in my pocket. I can make it disappear. I watched him with the hungry eyes of a hunting hawk. And I swear to you, ladies and gentlemen, all he did was snap his fingers. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, Liz, can you hear me? I sure can. Oh, fabulous. Okay. Uh, everyone, uh, my guest today is uh, Liz Winstead. She's co-creator of The Daily Show, co-founder of the former Air America, uh, stand-up comedian, storyteller, and all-around amazing activist, certainly right now for Planned Parenthood. Uh, and she's in New York, and we're in Los Angeles. Uh, welcome to the show, Liz. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to have you. Um, it, last time I saw you, we were hanging uh, in the green room of the green room. It's true. I think I was. I think I was curled up in a chair in the fetal position, exhausted. But it was so much fun that I didn't, couldn't leave. <laughs> yes, it was a bunch of girls in the green room hanging out, uh, talking about shooting vagina, uh, shooting knives out of our vagina. I believe. Yeah, I think that's true. I was thinking of unionizing my vagina. Oh, I kind of like that. Um, I know. We have to find a shop steward, though. <laughs> And 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 I'm I'm just trying to think, you know, instead of the AFL CIO or something like that, you know, what would the initials the it would have to be vagina would have to be maybe the acronym, and then we'd have to figure out what all those words mean. I know. Well, we would. I guess it would be vagunionized. Vagunionized. (laughs) Vagunionized. Vaginas unite. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Vaginas of the world unite. Well, you know what, though, these days? It's... Oh, I know. We're working for a minimum veg. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're honest. <laughs> <laughs> or a work 
working vag or a living vag. Oh, <laughs> living vag. Already, I see, I start in. You had me around thirty seconds. Right to the vag. It's it's good though. I like you know going right straight to the vag. It's an important thing. <laughs> Matt Cohen, my producer, just laughed, and we made him laugh on that one. Oh, good. But you know what? It's it's interesting because. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, there's something about feminine, the, the, the feminine and female power and um, doing things differently than the patriarchy that is uh, is kind of rearing its head these days, certainly with the uh, Occupy Wall Street and all of that. The, you know, the fact that Occupy Wall Street doesn't have a quote unquote leader to it makes it very much kind of like the feminine in some ways. It's... um you know, it's, it's not patriarchal and hierarchical and all of that. It's very collective. Well, and I like the fact that, you know, it, it's interesting in looking at it because, um, when I got the job, you know, to help create the daily show and stuff like that, I had never had any other writing job really before in my life. So I got this massive job to be a head writer and I had no idea how to do it. Yes. And so it was like, I, I felt like, and I still feel this way, and in, in writing this book, I feel this way. I love writing in the collective. I love that someone has an idea, and then it's thrown out into a room full of people that you trust, and then everybody takes the idea and allows the idea to go wherever it needs to go, just so it becomes the best thing possible. And it doesn't matter that it started, that it starts out anything like it started out. It just becomes the best thing, and everyone has ownership of it, and everyone feels like they had a part in developing it. And nobody's like clinging to something because it was the thing they thought of. And I love working that way. And I feel like Occupy Wall Street has that same feel to it. And to me, it's a wonderful way to work. And writing a book, you can't really do that. You can't really throw your life out to a room and say, okay, here's kind of the basis of my life. I'm already throwing some details so we can make it sound really good. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Right? So it's totally up to me and my storytelling skills to make whatever little snippets that I find interesting or something that happened to me in the world that I think would be helpful to other people and make that interesting. It's been really tough. I, I don't know that I enjoy it. Yeah, it, it really is two different exercises. I can relate to what you're talking about with, with the collective, kind of the co-creation moment, because it's like you're serving something bigger in that moment. You know, you're serving the show that week or that night or whatever it is, or, you know, and I've worked in different kind of, I mean, like improv, you know, I was talking last week with Phil Lamar, we were talking a lot about this, how improv is this co-creation in the moment. And, and yeah, and then there's, there's this other thing, which, you know, like writing a book and certainly, you know, you think of stand up comedians too, for the most part, unless they have writers for them. It's this one singular vision, this one singular voice, uh, wanting to shape, shape the story or, or shape the point of view. And, uh, it's, it's a whole, it, it is such a different, um, uh, skill set. It really, really is. And, um, and one that kind of, you know, is kind of lonely. <laughs> well, it is. And, it's, and the difference about it is that I enjoy both equally, but I do not put how I write my stand-up and perform my stand-up. Um, I don't bring any of those skills to how I create for a show because to me, I love the kind of shows where the show itself is a character and an entity and a tone. And so a lot of times, you know, writing for myself, I, just, I, I don't have anybody write for me. I just write my own stand-up and do my own stand-up. Mm-hmm. But for the show part, it's like um, people can say something really funny, but I'm constantly asking, and everyone then starts asking, that's great, 
but it feels like it takes us off someplace else. Like mm. we're all writing for a dialogue and a tone. And, and so they're two different things. And some people can't break out of either. Um, and that, and that can be a problem if you find somebody who's like a really great, talented stand up and then you throw them into a, a collaborative environment. They, they can't, they stumble. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with whether or not they're talented. They just have, they haven't honed that skill of collaboration. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I was, I was, I'm wondering, I mean, I don't, I mean, obviously men and women both have these skills to either be the singular artist or the collective artist, but, and, and women certainly aren't necessarily honored or, or um, supported in their in their ease in being more of a collective, you know, more about a collaborator and, and, and working with groups, I think, in some ways. But, you know, and I was reading a little article, an interview that you had done with someone a couple of years ago, actually, about women writers in late night um, and in those rooms, you know, and then I was also thinking about the sitcom rooms, you know, those kind of rooms. And have you noticed a difference with women and men in those kind of collaborative situations? Is there a difference? Have you noticed? Well, I, you know, it's funny because my collaborative experience has either been, has, I've never written in a sitcom room, so I don't know what that's like. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that I noticed um, at the beginning of The Daily Show and then as it moved on was um, when you have a bunch of funny guys who they have their power and their identity on being the funny guy, um, and that's their sexual power, all their power, you know, just who they are and who they identify with, when there's a woman in the room if she saw, if she sees him not being funny, um, then he takes that as you see my weakness. Ah. And so um, it was a very interesting dynamic that shifted greatly um, as the men became more comfortable with themselves and realized the more you throw out, you're going to have wins and losses, but everybody is. And so your identity is no longer um, how funny you are or how not funny you are. It's just this Thing that everybody does so we all share a creative process that means we're all equally not funny sometimes and equally funny sometimes but I think that whole identifying yourself with being a funny person can kill you and can make you really freaked out on a much bigger level and I think that was part of the dynamic with um, men in the room what I've noticed is in subsequent writers that I've worked with the men who are like over 50 still hang on to that uh. and the men who are under 40 and under um, kind of don't have that same sexual tension dynamic thing that happens. And so it's very interesting. Yeah. And I'm wondering too, just thinking about that, you know, like the kind of the biological imperative, like either you have brute strength, you know, it was always like, Oh, the cute studly guy or the cute or the funny guy with the personality. And, and I'm wondering like, even like some kind of weird on some biological anthropological level if not being the funny guy is like, oh, I don't have, my sperm will not move on to the next generation or something. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just tied up in so much weirdness that I don't even know, um, I, I don't even know how, how, to, how to do it because I've never wanted to be defined as any one thing. Yeah. And so to, to wrap my identity up in only being the funny person or only being the funny political person or only being the political person you know, people love to pigeonhole you because it's easier. And I'm just like, and even as a kid, it was part of my like abject frustration with the world was like, I was on the dance line in high school, you know, which is basically the Rockettes. That like when I was in charge of the dance line, of course I was in charge of the dance line. Um, <laughs> the first, I choreographed, I choreographed a dance to show some emotion by Joan Armour training. And so people are like, 
we, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> dance line people aren't supposed to know about Joan Armour training. Right. Or I got a student council because I, those guys always had the best pot, you know, because, <laughs> and they were smart enough not to smoke it in public. And so people thought they were smart, you know, and I love, like, I was a big Lord of the Rings nerd, but I would wear it, I would read it at hockey games, you know. And so people were like, who are you? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't really know. I think I'm a lot of things. But don't try to make me one thing because I'll explode. It's why I never liked fashion magazines as a woman. Like, I sure, I like lipstick, but I don't only like lipstick. You know, that's why I think <laughs> Vanity Fair is such a good magazine. Because you can read some nice article and then a little celebrity gossip and then something about, you know, socialize and you can kind of mix it all up. Yes. Um, and I'm somebody who's constantly, I, I feel like, uh, you know, for me, um, like, boredom is death. Hmm. It really, I would die if I was bored. And so I'm constantly reaching out and talking and trying a new thing or whatever. And so, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, it's a curiosity is a vital organ to me. It is not something that is optional. Oh, I, I love that. I mean, curiosity, I think is curiosity, which is tied into imagination, you know, are two things that, uh, you know, are not um, honored in our culture anymore. We're just kind of, you know, spoon fed shit. And we're supposed to go, Oh, okay, that's the way it is. And I find that, you know, I can sit down with anyone, no matter who they are, whatever side of the aisle, planet, country, whatever. And if I just get curious about them, there is a whole pathway into a person that uh, did not exist when I just decided uh, who they are from what they look like or what, how they vote or, or if they pray to something or, or whatever. Um, you know, you were talking. true. Yeah. Yeah. You were talking about not wanting to be pigeonholed. I can so relate to that. I mean, in high school, I was uh, an AP student. So I was one of the brainiacs. I was a stoner girl. I also was part of the Hollywood clique because all of our parents were, you know, part of the business and stuff like that. And, and so I could, I could move within these different cliques. I was like the chameleon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet, so that's what I did too. That's exactly what I did. Yeah. And, and it was hard because it was like, I kind of felt like, well, am I a fake because I do that? Or am I just, you know, like you said, curious and interested and can kind of relate and and want to relate to anything. And as a woman, you're right. It's very frustrating in this culture because I look out there in certainly the mainstream media and there's very few women who represent and look like and talk about what's interesting to me on, on a, on a huge playing field, you know, I mean, on, on the whole, the whole big buffet of life. I completely agree. And it's so funny because for me, like the perception was that I was well-rounded and it was that I was just desperate and probably had OCD. (laughs) (laughs) Undiagnosed mental illness (laughs) that in the 1960s was just like, oh, you're into everything. And um, and, and, and my mom, as as crazy and nutty as she was, and, you know, and, you know, did her who did her darndest uh, as a mom. She wasn't one of those moms that ever asked. She just forgot to say, what if you fail? Mm-hmm. Like I, so I had this courage by omission, really. You know, it was like, um, she didn't say, well, you shouldn't try that. She would always say to me, Liz, your life seems exhausting. But everything was exhausting <laughs> her. Vatican II was exhausting to her, you know? So it was like, it was her problem. Like I just totally lucked out in having um, the confidence to try stuff um, it wasn't that I thought I was good. It was just that I didn't, if I didn't like it, I would just try something out. Mm. And I, you know, and so, um, you know, and, and I just did that because of bore, you know, boredom. And in the 1960s, there wasn't a whole lot of, 
you know, female role models going, hey, here's a good idea. You should really exercise that big mouth muscle of yours. <laughs> <laughs> you should go for it. We want to give you a big platform. <laughs> so you kind of had to find it on your own. Did you um, Did you know you were going to go into the, the kind of the into writing and the arts and performance and stuff like that? Or did you have that urge young? You know, the urge that I had young was the urge to be heard. Mm. I was the youngest of five kids. And my parents were older, and so they were kind of tired. Like, my mom had me at 41. And and then my oldest sister is six years older than me, and then eight, and then 10, and then 13. So I was kind of this, um, I just wanted to be heard. Mm. And so I didn't really understand what that meant. I just wanted to be listened to sometimes. And so for me, the only people that um, really had a voice that I kind of were exposed to in the world was uh, were musicians and priests. And so, and I never wanted kids. I always found them annoying. I found them like just this saddled, awful, they never held up their end of the conversation. And I felt like they got way too much credit for doing nothing and all this adulation. I was really, and I'm, you know, still slightly like that. Um, And so I'm like, I, so I wanted to try to be a priest. Mm. Uh, I wanted to be an altar boy first. And he was like, well, you can't be. I had this whole thing where I went and met the priest and like, it was the whole thing. And so, um, you know, and so then, um, music for me was something that I loved it and I would get green with envy at lyrics Mm. because I would hear lyrics and think, I wish I said that. I want to relate like that to people. I wish I thought of that. And it didn't occur to me that, um, you know, I could do that. And funny that I'm talking to you because what happened was I, uh, I was home one night in my like late teens, early twenties, watching tonight show and your dad was on and my girlfriend from college said, Hey, why don't you try that? And I said, what? And she goes, telling jokes, you know, you tell say stuff all the time about how annoyed you are with people. <laughs> and when I, but what was, what really went through my head was I'd never seen someone like me, i.e. a young woman doing that. Yes. I saw men, men with ties, or older women like Joan Rivers or Tony Fields, but I never saw a young woman, so it didn't dawn on me that I could say my experiences with humor on stage. Yeah. Until that, until it was like, oh wait, maybe I can do that. You know, I can do that. And so then I kind of thought about it and made little notes, and and that's how I just tried it, like six months after that. And were you still in? Were you? Uh, you you grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Minneapolis. Yeah, I was in college. You were. I was in college and then finally it was kind of like I was in college and I was working two jobs and I was in a sorority and I was like doing 900 things. And all of a sudden it was like, um, I think this is where I'm going to get my education. Mm. I think I'm going to try to do this thing. And I was lucky enough to be in a town where comedy really started exploding mm-hmm. and there was tons of clubs and I didn't have to move to one of the coasts and develop and have somebody accidentally see me before I was ready or any of that. Yep, yep. Um, and all these great comics were coming through town. And so I got to develop relationships with people. And they all said the same thing. Stay in Minnesota as long as you can. You have all this great stuff happening here. You can fall down three, four times a night and work out material. And, and the thing that people like forget a lot about stand up is you have to develop your material and your confidence simultaneously. Yes. Yes, exactly. And that's, crazy. It's it's a crazy thing. Yeah. It's the only way you can do it is by doing it. And the only way you can feel good about doing it is by doing it. And 
you have to just, uh, yeah. You know, it's interesting too, because you were just saying that being able to fail safely in some ways in a, in a hidden kind of a safe environment. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm friends with Amy Stiller, who's the daughter of, you know, Jerry Stiller and, and Mira. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, she wanted to go try stand up a couple of years ago and she went and changed her name. And she would do open mics with a different name just because she didn't want to deal with it at all. And, um, and I've, I had Rain Pryor on last week, um, here and she's doing stand up, full on doing stand up now. She just did her first on the road gig, which is really exciting, co-headlining. And, and she, she's been in Baltimore working out her material. And, yeah. and I can see that, you know, I, I, I think that's why my dad always was really, you know, scared for me and didn't want me to do it was because, you know, what was I going to do? Go up to the comedy store and, uh, be, right. Ke- be Kelly Carlin, you know, and, uh, try that. I mean, there's just no fucking way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, that's why I'm glad Wilbur Winstead was my dad. And although he was very <laughs> hilarious, my dad, and there was like, and he was this sort of legendary, bigger than life figure in our family. And so when I did decide to do it, it was like, you know, I, I had an obligation to him in this weird way to be funny. And we were like, he was just this political right wing crazy person, but hilarious and funny. And, um, you know, he was thrilled. And what was so fascinating and what I learned sort of through my journey, especially with him, was he would goad me constantly to get into these political fights with him. I, I was I never choose to get into political fights with people. But he would goad me, and the reason that he did was because when we were fighting, A, he thought at least I had formulated thoughts that were ideologically different than his, yes. but he respected them, and he saw himself in me in the way I thought. Ah, that's... And it was really a fascinating thing to discover. So, so it, And it was kind of a respect for the debate itself. It was a respect for the debate itself. And the way that we came to detente uh-huh. was that we would watch Jeopardy together. <laughs> Because if we could both answer the Jeopardy questions, we couldn't call each other stupid. <laughs> I love that. So I'd be like, what is a Sudetenland? And they'd be like, and then we'd like, he'd be, he'd be like, you're smart. Why are you a liberal? I'd be like, why do you like Reagan? You're smart. Like, I don't get it. Um, so you know, it was, it was a very, it was a very interesting, uh, you know, relationship. Not to mention he was just like my biggest champion. My, both my parents were. And so that was kind of nice for them to, I never knew that, but they would like tell other people, you know, my mom would cut out things out of the paper. Even if I was in a show and I was like the, uh, it said like Louis Anderson and others, if I was the, and others, <laughs> she'd cut that out. Oh, and she'd so carry sweet. it around and show people in lieu of baby oh, pictures. That's so <laughs> <I know>. sweet. <laughs> it's very sweet. That, they were pretty awesome. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. How, so your dad was Republican. How, and how did you, how did you, you know, discover the more liberal point of view then if your house was kind of filled with the more conservative point of view? Well, I, I grew up in Minnesota, which is, you know, the People's Republic. And so <laughs> I, I grew up with a whole bunch of lefties. Like the Catholic school that I went to was, um, you know, pretty, pretty social justice-y. Mm, love that. Uh, you know. Yep. Which, you know, was annoying to my parents, you know. <laughs> and, and, um, and then I had all those older siblings who came of age in the 60s and 70s, his friends uh, were in the war and all this stuff. Gotcha. And so basically, it was kind of like my parents were the only people around me that thought that way. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> it was kind of like, and not to mention, you know, my mom with the, oh, my God, you're exhausting or, oh, my God, it's confusing. I was just like, well, fine. You know, we both love Christmas. This is good. We'll make cookies. 
will not talk about it and yada, yada, yada. So, um, you know, and the humor thing, man, that was really big in our house. Mm. Like the humor was huge. And so, um, my dad would always say, whenever we get in a fight, he would end up saying to me, you know, I raised you to have an opinion. I forgot to tell you it was supposed to be mine. (laughs) And it was like, yeah, that was a problem. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic though. That, uh, you know, there was the, the encouragement to, to speak your mind and, uh, to, and really to form those opinions. Uh, and, and it is good practice to go up against people who are different from you. Like, you know, I found when my dad died, um, you know, I was, I was very much kind of hiding in my house and, and doing some spoken word stuff and being, being a life coach basically, but I did, I hadn't put my toe out there in public much. And then, and then right around when my dad died, kind of like the Facebook and Twitter kind of world really exploded. And so I found this, you know, this place, this platform to start saying things to the world. And it was really scary those first few times, kind of putting myself out there and then having someone disagree with me. And having to find the logic or to find where I really stand and, and to, and to back up my points in a, in a way that wasn't emotion based or wasn't just, you know, I believe this because I believe this, but really based in some sort of, you know, logic and, and firm, good, uh, you know, uh, ar- argument basically, you know, argument in that kind of sense of the word. And it was very empowering for me to learn that I could, you know, I could learn to, di- I could say to someone, look, Let's agree to disagree, but at least you feel like you had a fair, uh, you know, a, a, a fair conversation with someone who's on the other side. That that I love. Well, and, and you know, those days seem to be gone. You yes. know, it's like, you know, it's sort of like if somebody, like now you say, uh, you know, Herman Cain's tax, you know, 999 plan doesn't make any sense. And somebody writes back to you on Twitter, no one would ever fuck you, you filthy cunt. It's like, <laughs> Wow. Um, wow. I'm just saying that seems like uh, there's a big, huge, giant tax. It doesn't seem to add up, but nobody wants to fuck me. I guess uh, 999 on the sex for me. You know, I mean, it was, it was so, it's so crazy. Yeah. And, you know, there's like, there's a, it's not a philosophy anymore. Yes, exactly. I, I feel like these people who are frustrated are basically the only thing you need to to wow a teabagger is a bus with your picture airbrushed <laughs> on it. And, you know, it's like reality TV has kind of permeated the way people think about everything, culture, politics, you know, you move on to the next thing. You just have to be sort of compelling. And then when that goes away, you'll just find someone else is sort of compelling. And, you know, it, 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 it just... I get very worried about it because it, mm-hmm. it goes back to kind of what you were saying earlier about process, which is, you know, we as a culture do not understand process at all anymore. I mean, even like we're so short-sighted about about things might take six, eight months to a year. Yep. People don't even know how to cook food anymore. We put our food <laughs> in the microwave and we pull it out. Like to wait for a pie? Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? There'd be rebellion in a house. <laughs> You know, you got to peel the apple. Fuck that. <laughs> I'd rather have something that's marginally okay, that's full of gooky, weird apple products and, you know, oozes out of a shell-based form. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and it, it, it is that, that part of us that I think there's a panic behind everything these days. The, this sense that, oh, my God, everything feels so life and death and that if I don't, if I don't get what I want in this second, the satisfaction of it, the hit of the adrenaline, then I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. And, and it is frightening. Yeah. 
and also that the this whole notion that everyone's trying to take something away from you. Yes, yes. And that part of it I don't understand at all. You know, in the wake of this crazy Ohio story where all those exotic animals were killed. Yeah. And there was like, wait a minute, is it really you know don't tread on me land that and you can't have the government say guess what we we would just prefer if you didn't have Bengal tigers in your half bath. Yes. You know, it was just that, that, that's just something that we think as for society's sake, we need to have a law about it. Well, and yet it's always we can't have government and this and that and the other thing. It's like you shouldn't can't have government, you shouldn't have Bengal tigers in your house. <laughs> yeah, there's there's this fear that if we are asked to have to, to limit ourselves or to or to slow down or to think about the consequences of things it's, it's, something is going to happen and i don't know what that that big fear is i mean i'm a person who believes in liberty and freedom you know i i there's plenty of freedoms and liberty that i think are important and and ways in which i don't think the government should be involved in my life i, I get that and yet, but they want the government to run all those things. Well, that that's the that's what I find so beautifully ironic about all of that is, you know, the 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 left has their list of things they want the government out of, and the right has their list of things they want the government out of, and then they each have the list of things that's okay the government to be involved in, and so it always makes me laugh when I hear the conservatives saying, you know, that it's it, or or even the libertarians, you know, it's, it's about no government at all, you know, except for these few things that. We just think are really important that we want to impose on everyone. And, and it's like, it's almost like that's that part. It's like that argument is not really what the argument is about people. It's, it's a more like what you're saying. It's like, are you sure you want to have people around you who can keep six Bengal tigers in their backyard? Like, like really, you think that's going to be right. You know, like everyone's going to be responsible. That's right. You know, it's like, you well, I mean, I personally would like the government to help monitor, you know, the collective good. What's what's good for everyone around me? I don't live in a bubble. I live amongst other people. Yeah. What behaviors, you know, can make other people? I also live in a in a world where somebody like me who tells jokes for a living gets paid way more than someone that educate educates our kids. Yeah. And that's a really fucked up priority and dynamic, and it's the one we live in. And so, since that is the way it works. I can't change that part. That, that, but when a teacher can't live on a wage, like, then why can't I, because I am lucky enough to make more just because of the pay structure of what I do, we need teachers. Why can't we help teachers and firefighters and cops and people, um, have, be able to make a living wage and, and help them out with lowering their taxes and having my taxes be more because I, it's, I'm lucky. Like, I don't understand that you know yeah half of the reason you're rich is because you're lucky yeah or I, even more than half probably yeah a- absolutely and, and and i think that um you know i i think the old divide that was really established in the 60s you know that really became you know the lefties versus the establishment that divide um has kind of you know been this echo chamber now for uh, 50 years. And, and it's like, there's a third way, you know, there, there's something else beyond this particular argument we have, which is working people versus, uh, you know, elitists or um, unions versus, you know, 
right to work states and things like that. There's, there's got to be a new part of the conversation here, you know, that, that, that we're, that, that the, the mainstream media refuses to, to kind of create a new narrative. I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by the Occupy Wall Street because they won't, they won't give in to desperately how the mainstream media wants to, you know, fill in the narrative and make them fill them into some sort of um, Mad Libs version of a news story, you know, <laughs> so, right, so, right. That, so that they can then dismantle it, you know, and and that's and I think there's something organically naturally arising out of this collective intelligence that's showing up today in the Occupy Wall Street and, and 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 can show up in these conversations about you know who is it in the culture that really makes a society worth something and worth something not only today but worth something in 20 years and 50 years and 100 years and and certainly education and the common good and the whole notion of the commons itself right. has completely right. gone away from our conversation there's that we you totally. know the common good doesn't uh, it, it's, you know, and, and I get it, you know, I get the narcissism of, you know, of what happened in the sixties. And it was important because it was important because then people like my father, who's an individual who, who could come out and say, you know, I'm an individual and I see it this way. And that individual people who are part of minorities had a voice again. And yet, want to be nice. And I think it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when we all come back around to talking about things that are about the common again, the common good, the common sense. Yeah, but that, and that requires talking to each other. Yes. You know, instead of talking sort of into the ether. And I think that, you know, it was there was an interesting story on NPR that I heard long, long time ago, and it was talking about the invention of the air conditioner uh -huh. when it became for personal use. And that's, and before the air conditioner was um, affordable to like regular houses in the United States, um, people would be out on their lawns and talking and they knew their neighbors and they hung out. And when the air conditioner happened, people went inside and closed up their house. Wow. And, and they stopped having the common dynamic that you're exactly talking about and it isolated people. And I just, um, I just think that was so fascinating and it makes so much sense. And even in politics, you know, it used to be that um, people didn't go home every weekend and there wasn't all this money in politics and people roomed with each other and they got yes. apartments in Washington, D.C. with yes. each other. And they and socialized they, and they, together. Yes. Yeah. And they socialized and it was so and, it, and they, they had to do that very thing that you thought that you were talking about, which is you find out about somebody and you find out things about that person and your politics might be different, but you really respect who they are as a human because of their love of this and that and the other thing. And um, even the even the road trip, you know, even <laughs> going and discovering all these WPA projects, you know, you go to uh, Yosemite and you go to these places and you see the beauty that happened and you see what we did and you see what this nation created and it, you're so respectful of it. And if you don't go to those places, like literally when the oil spill happened and all this stuff was going down, I think people were just like, I hate fish, so what do I care? Mm. You know, I mean, I think that it, it boiled down to this crazy, it doesn't affect me place. That's really scary. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very true. And, and I wonder, I really wonder how we can as a nation again and as citizens, uh, find, 
find that place to have that conversation. I mean, like you were saying, I mean, there's, you know, and, and the thing is, is like, I find it a little bit on Facebook and a little bit on Twitter. I don't get it attacked as much as you do. It's on Twitter. <laughs> but, but, you know, I have some conversations with people and, um, and it's hard with 140 characters, but, but there's also a sense of community and, and a sense of heart out there. And I think everyone's frustrated with this. And, and I do, I have a little bit of a fantasy of, you know, I would love to just bring people together who think they're so different and on such different sides of the aisle or the issues or whatever and, and bring them together in a different kind of situation where, you know, all of that gets put aside until they really get to know each other. Uh, and I wonder if there's even organizations, I'm sure there are organizations out there doing this kind of stuff, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's time. It's time for us. I mean, that's why I love that, you know, that once again, the Occupy Wall Street, it's like the 99%. I mean, even with the 1%, at some point, we're going to have to have a conversation with the 1% too. But the 99% is so all inclusive. That's a that's you know that's got potential to maybe bring people together. Well, and I and I don't know how you do it. And I you know it's like everyone loves food, everyone loves music, everyone loves you know things. And so you mean I think through I think it's through culture. Yeah. You know, I, I one time I went on Fox and Cal Thomas was the other guest on the show, and um, he loves musical theater, and so do I. And so we sat backstage and sang show tunes, <laughs> and it was really fun. And, you know, he, he used to, he used to be a theater buddy of Frank Rich and they would go to the theater together and stuff. Mm. And, um, you know, it was like, and making someone laugh, you know, if you can make someone laugh, yep. the interesting thing about that is, um, that means that you have connected with them. Mm-hmm. And so if someone gives you joy and through humor, uh, or through music or whatever, um, they can't deny that there's a common bond there. Yeah. And so then can you get to the meat of the stuff? But if somebody is so scared and closed off and doesn't get out in the world and meet people who are different than them and even eat different food that's different than them and hear music that's different than them, they're just constantly going to be so afraid of change instead of saying, you know, how can this new interesting thing uh, be better for me, be better for the world we live in? Um, I can hear your perspective because you for generations have had a different struggle than I even ever knew existed. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can hear mine. I, you know, I just, I feel like if we don't get back to that, then it's going to be really scary. And when you have TV and that's the other thing, it's during these big giant economic problem times, um, comedy was never affected because it was the outlet with which people would always go to the clubs because they would cut back in their, in their budgets for, you know, we can't go on vacation, but, you know, we'll save our money, we'll go to the theater, we'll go see comedy. Yeah. But now people are saying, I have to save that money for my cable and my Netflix. Yep. And then they don't get out anymore. And so that right. is more isolating. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I feel really worried about it. And I don't know if we could like, you know, once a month do free shows, always offer discounts, always do something saying, you know what? let's have a come together thing or I don't know, but yeah. it's, um, something needs to change. Yeah. It's, it almost makes you, you long for like an alien invasion or something because then we'd all have to come together to figure that out. <laughs> well, I know. Well, even today, you know, it's like they showed a clip of Hillary Clinton talking to Karzai uh-huh. and he was asked, he was asking about Herman Cain right. and his crazy use Becky, Becky Stan Stan thing. And he's like, who is this man who does not know about you, Becky? He's Becky Stan. 
Uh-huh. And she's like, well, he, he's a big pizza person and, <laughs> and he had a pizza company and he wants to be president and he doesn't know who the president of Ubeck is. He goes, yeah, Stan, Stan. He called it Stan, Stan. <laughs> and then Hillary just goes, what a lovely day it is here. And I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, wow. This is so crazy. <laughs> you know, when the international community is looking at us going, oh, my God, you don't need to know the president of Uzbekistan is <laughs> they have loose nukes. And in the same breath, you're screaming, bomb Iran. Where do you think Iran gets the loose nukes? Yeah. Like, Uzbeki, Uzbeki, stand, stand, you dumb shit. <laughs> like, I'm a comedian and I know this. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> I know, I know. It's, it's like, and I feel like personally, you know, I'm on my own particular precipice with like, well, do I just numb myself through this time? (laughs) Or do I try to get (laughs) or do I try to stay more sober and awake and like really connect my heart and you know, my compassion to everything and try to be a witness to it all? You know, it's, you know, I'm like, I think about my dad, you know, a lot lately, because you know, my dad decided at some point to really detach from the whole species. And I'm like, I get it. I get why he did that. It's kind of easier to pretend like you're sitting over on Jupiter and watching Earth going, aren't they silly down there? Look at those humans. But, uh, you know, I've always been a connector and I'm I'm very a communal person and, um, you know, and and got the maternal thing inside of me, even though I don't have kids also. But, you know, and, and want to find a way to bring more big heart out into the world. And in order to do that, you need to be present for it and, and witness it. Well, I think that's right too. And when, when, uh, when, when Bush won the election in 2004 um, and conceded, um, uh, we, Rachel and I were on the air, Rachel Maddow and I had a radio show together mm-hmm. and Rachel and I were on the air and people were calling up and screaming, I can't take it. I'm going to move to Canada. And I said, you cannot call my show and you cannot call yourself a progressive if what you think being a progressive means abandoning people who need you. We have don't have enough voices in the world for the voiceless. Mm. And this is the last thing in the world you can do is threaten to leave and check out because, you know, we just with with so much noise and so much hate hate fueled, uninformed rhetoric out there, the people who can speak truth to power and articulate it. And at least, you know, I, I don't claim to be any brilliant genius, but I like, I, I have enough information to ask questions and I like to ask questions through humor. And I, and it, if nothing else, people gather together and have a catharsis at my shows. And I cannot tell you, especially doing this Planned Parenthood tour, how great it is to have four or 500 people gathered in a room. And then they come up to me and they go, Hey, that lady over there lives across the street from me. I had no idea that she was pro-choice. And now I've met her and we're going to have lunch and we're going to talk about stuff. Mm. You know, to be part of something is makes you feel more empowered. And that's really important. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It does. I mean, that, that sense of isolation. I mean, that is the cool thing about social media, that you do get to connect more with like minded people and not feel so alone. And 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 that is so essential. And, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, about the Planned Parenthood thing. I know, I remember we were talking before you went out on your first one and you were a little nervous about the protesting and having, you know, security and things like that. Um, how has that been for you? Has it been scary or has it been, have you encountered a lot Um, of stuff? I've encountered some, there's a lot of hate fueled rhetoric. 
Um, you know, I've had anywhere from 200 protesters to 30 to one lone guy who was almost the scariest of all, just walking back and forth. <laughs> um, and then people write a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this one woman compared me to Michael Vick, like that, like I was wow. a, like, yeah, I mean, mm. just like kind of nutty stuff. But more than anything else, it's been incredibly motivating and moving to see a, um, lots of young women coming out where part of the reason that I wanted to do the tour was because I've been doing shows for Planned Parenthood and Re- Reproductive Health stuff for years. And it was always like the pre-row women who were fighting the fight yeah. and doing the do. And they were always, you know, it was always older women. And so I was really, you know, I, it was like, why don't I be an ancillary thing? You know, I'm a cheaper ticket. I, you know, we'll do, go cheaper ticket. We'll get younger people in. You know, I'm kind of body. It's comedy. It's like a younger thing. And we've just had a tremendous amount of young men and women coming out and people being, you know, feeling really psyched about it. And, um, you know, these women that work in these clinics and these affiliates, they're just drowning. Yeah. You know, every day they go to work and there are protesters outside of those clinics every single day. And they're told that they're garbage and they're told that they're horrible and they're told that they're going to hell and that what they're doing is wrong. And they should be allowed to do what they do, which is provide, you know, affordable health care for women. And yeah. people like me who are youth Planned Parenthood need to be stick up for them and not have to have them fight their battles like that as well. We should be saying Planned Parenthood does this. I went there. You know, my goal is for people to talk about Planned Parenthood like they talk about lens crafters. You know, mm-hmm. just start saying it. You know, I went to lens. I mean, it should be at the mall. You know, I went to Planned Parenthood. <laughs> And then I went to Yankee Candles and then, you know, socks and such or Cinnabon or whatever you do at the mall. But, you know, it's just the demonization of the women who are doing such good work is incredibly creepy. And they're just they're they're, they're emotionally drained and they need to just be able to be proud of their work and do good work. And we need to stand up and say, yes, one in three women have go to Planned Parenthood. Yeah. Or have used it in some fashion. Yep. And, and it's like, hello. Like start acting like it, ladies. Yeah, and uh, you know, and I think that's it's such a uh, such a typical issue, but it's it it kind of represents all the other issues. There's this like completely divisive version of this issue, which Planned Parenthood equals murder, and 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 yet it's it's you know, but when you really think about the importance of just women's reproductive health, reproductive rights. And what that means for a culture in general, and that you're allowed to have much more complex conversations about things like abortion than, you know, it's either all good or all bad. Because abortion is is never, I mean, unless you're a completely unconscious human being and, and, and really not even attached to your body, abortion is never, ever, ever an easy uh, choice. It, it's not an easy thing to do. You know, there's, there's a, a lot inside of it when you're a woman and you've had one and uh you know and they make women out to be like feelingless emotionless selfish cunts you know who 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 yeah. you know just want to get on with their lives and it's like no these are women for the most part a who can't afford to have children or b it is going to completely fuck up the potential of this person's life and they've made a mistake and and it's you know and it's it's and and now the laws that are happening 
the one that they just passed, I guess, in Congress last week, or I don't know if it's completely passed yet, about, you know, any federal funded Catholic hospital can refuse a woman, make her get in an ambulance if she's dying, if she needs, a, you know, an abortion to live. I mean, it's... it's, it's I mean, a, what people don't realize is that across the country, um, there's been 800 pieces of legislation proposed wow. that reduce the amount, the, the any kind of access to um, either birth control or or abortion, um, and and you know no tax dollars pay for abortion, not one penny. Right. The Planned Parenthood does three percent of everything they do. Exactly. And they provide breast cancer screening, AIDS screening, child care, child wellness. I mean, um, you know, women's wellness. And you know, here's hello, America. Guess what? We're sexual beings, and I will not. <laughs> yes, hello. We're sexual beings, and we are. And when you have sex mistakes happen and so you 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 have to allow for the health of the panoply of what happens when you are a sexual being yep that's just the way it works and so anybody who says i want to reduce the number of abortions in this country and the way i want to do that is by removing all access to birth control should not have a seat at the table that person is not about um reproductive health that person is about controlling women yeah it's it's just not realistic i mean it's it's an insane it's an insane position to take. I mean, there's pl- it just it just it just it confounds me that, uh, and it feels like as a woman. I mean, you know, I was lucky. I grew up in the post Roe v. Wade era, and um, you know, have had a choice in my life, and 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 yet it feels like the really extreme. You know, the people on the other side there who are really extreme. It, it feels like it's just pure hatred about women and their power and their bodies and what they're capable of. And, and it's, it's so pathological to me. It, and then they get political power. It's really yeah. frightening to me. Well, and also, you know, the other word, the other P word, potential. They mm. want to destroy the potential of women. And, um, you know, I, I, I have an essay in my book about, I got pregnant the first time I ever had sex mm-hmm. and, um, found myself in one of those awful clinics. And, uh, that was not a Planned Parenthood that advertised itself to be one of them. And the, and the, you know, a woman who is like dressed in a lab coat, like, you know, a fakey doctor, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, the clinic ladies wear lab coats too. Well, I'm dumb. But, um, you know, uh, t- said things to me in such a way like, abortions against our law, right? And I'm 16 and I hear that. <laughs> and you're like, what? Right? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Mm. And it's against her religious law, but the way they phrase things right. is manipulative. And to put a 16-year-old woman or girl who is, you know, we're sexual beings before we're fully formed, you know, mature people like making good choices. Absolutely. Like that's just the way nature works. So for that person to be impersonating a person of God and a mm. physician and telling me that, you know, my life's insignificant, that is some damaging shit. Yeah. And that's happening all the time. Yeah. And, you know, like, and, 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 you know, the number of Planned Parenthoods that are going away. I mean, there's one Planned Parenthood in the state of Mississippi. It's in Hattiesburg and it's three motel rooms linked together in wow. 2011. Wow. Yeah. I know. It's and like the so Middle Ages. It, it's crazy. It is. It is like, it is so... Crazy. What is it about us women that is so terrifying? <laughs> you know what? Well, first of all, we bleed for seven days each month and we don't die. Ooh, it's like <laughs> some sort of magical right, thing comes out of our We're crotch. Magic. 
Yeah, literally. <laughs> and babies. We make shit. And we, we, we bleed and don't die. And then we make shit. Other people. So I guess it's the old witch. And wi- we don't it, need them right, to make people anymore. It's the old witch argument. You know, I guess we have these uh, yes. kind of strange sort, sort of uh, conduit into the creation or something. And therefore, we've got some sort of magical powers. And uh, it's just, it's fascinating. It's, 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 and what's fascinating... Well, they want to fuck us, you know. Like, <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, they, the the fact that they want to fuck us so much, I'm sure, makes them so annoyed. You know that, like, we have all this power that they just stare at us, like, "Oh my god, I want to fuck you," and it's like, and I get to say if you do or don't. Yes, bummer for you. It is. I get. Yeah, I could see that. That is kind of uh, frustrating. It's like, hey, you can make my body part do something, and then you mm-hmm. can say, and then you say, no, I can't have it. That's very mean yes. of you i'm going to get i know and that. that's and that's what women need to realize that we have all the power and that's what freaks them out yeah yeah they know it and we somehow don't know it even though it happens to us constantly we're bleeding all the time we're popping <laughs> out babies fucking making shit and yet we're like we don't have any power it's like we have all the fucking power if we would just band together and fucking act like it well you know it's a, such a good point because i mean in, a, in even in a broader way um you know it wasn't until my 40s that like o- owning my intuitive power like how i'm i'm a very intuitive person and i can really feel into situations and people and and then speak the truth about that that like blows people away and i have that power and and that's one that you know out in the world is not really acknowledged and is um you know it's like there's logic and all this other kind of stuff out which is very important too but it wasn't until my 40s when i when i realized that that was really a power i had as as a woman i mean all people have intuition but really i can connect to it on this really deep level and use it and and now I no longer hide from it. And and I think that's just true in general. I don't think because we look outside of ourselves and we don't see that, you know, women are just put into these roles. And it's it's so funny. I mean, here it is 2011 and we're still in some ways fighting against those old archetypes, you know, of women that they're either mothers, wives or whores. And um, and yet we do have the power. We have so much power and it's so untapped, the potential for women on this planet. And, you know, I've been to a couple of women's conferences and you see the power of what some of these women are doing, these women leaders in Africa and, and Eastern Europe and, and places where they're stepping forward and they're changing communities and changing cultures from the inside and from, and from the bottom up, you know, and you say, Oh yeah, look at that. We are, we are powerful because we we don't have to play by those guys' rules anymore. Well, and you know what they did? They just took the power. Yes, they did. They just decided we're having some power. Yep, yep. We're and taking it. We're because taking the power. You know what? No one this is something I'm learning as an adult. No one no one will give you anything. And, no. and and it doesn't mean you have to take it in a way that's violent or violating to others, but claiming it is essential That's because right. no one is going to fucking hand it to you ever. You know, as an artist in my own career right now, it's like, you know, if I want to grow as an artist and I want to have a bigger audience and get to people, I'm the one who has to say, that's what I want and I'm going towards it. And it's the same thing in our culture. You're right. You know, mm-hmm. saying mm-hmm. this is what we want. This is what we're demanding now. And, uh, and, and, and we're going to keep our focus on this until something happens. And I'm going to offer it up. Yep. Yeah. yeah. 
Yep. You know, I'm going to offer it up. What I have to say matters. What I do matters. It actually makes a difference. I'm going to um, tell people about it without shame and without asking permission to tell people and do it. I'm going to do it. Yep. That's exactly right. It makes you, and you know what? Here's the dirty secret that women need to realize is that people love that because they love somebody who is going to put them on a path or give them a direction. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, I cannot tell you how many like women bosses I have had who were like first generation seizing power who would say things like, can you get this done for me? And it's like, okay. And then when it wasn't done by five, they were annoyed. Right. And it's like, say, I want, can you get this done by five? Or I need this done by five. Yes. Like set parameters, set goals, you know, be specific. Ask for what People you want. People love specificity. Yep. Ask for what you want mm-hmm. because it's all part of the process of your bigger goal. Yep. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. One of the most exciting things I've done in the last five years is I um, did this really incredible leadership program and have been studying leadership and, 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 and new forms of leadership. This kind of what we were talking earlier about more of the co-creative type of leadership. Uh, Peter mm-hmm. Senge is involved with this. Another one, Margaret Wheatley and some really cool people. And and yes, there I, I you know, it's like I wish I had three fucking lives to live because <laughs> there's not enough hours yeah. in the day. But I am fascinated by teaching people how to ask for what they want, how to know what the room needs or what the organization needs or the moment needs and how to ask for that, how to step into the power of the moment and and to to take take the moment in a way and then co-create. I mean, that's, you know, it's 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 ripe and 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 it's it's empowering and you're right. People do want to, you know, there, I think everyone at this time needs to know that they are leaders, that there are no more leaders, like the leaders of the country and the leaders in business clearly aren't getting the job done. That's right. And so we need to all be citizen leaders. If you see something that is wrong, let's do something about it. Well, and you know what else too is something that I discovered also was, you know, in, in when I've run writer's rooms or been in charge of a creative situation and there's somebody who I've got to answer to, um, if I fight for an idea that I believe in, um, the people whose idea that I'm fighting for, the team, the writers, like, they don't expect you to win every time. But the fact that you are standing up and not just kowtowing, and that doesn't mean you have to, like, call, be on a phone with a network executive and be an asshole. Right. But it means that you are saying, I really believe in this. How do we make this work? Or how can we make this better? You know, I'm a creative person. Oh, we can still do the premise, but switch it up. Okay, great. Oh, I really think this is great. And if they say no, 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 then you know what? You have people who respect you and know that you'll defend their work. Mm-hmm. And that's huge. You get, you get the most out of people. Mm-hmm. They know that you're not just going to sit back. You know, and I think that's part of the reason me personally, why I was got so frustrated with Obama was just like watching him like go in and already have, you know, walk into a negotiating room and leaving half the shit out of the room. Yeah. Not going in with all the tools. Yeah. You know, it felt like he would just, um, you know, make compromises before he ever got to the thing. And it's like, dude, go in there with everything. Yeah. 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 He, uh, I think he, he, he valued, in some ways he valued connection more or trying to make or create connection and relationship than versus, um, understanding the full game there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, and sometimes you're going to run into people who are rudderless assholes. Yeah. Who and, will not 
Yeah. Compromise. And, and really, you know, who, who, what he's walked, what he walked into was a, such a divisive, I mean, the, you know, the last 10 years or eight years have been so divisive already. And, uh, no one, no one was looking to, uh, exercise a, a new muscle called compromise. <laughs> they were all, the, everyone was in their corners, you know, and, uh, you know, I, t- I take my hat off to him to wanting to have that kind of idealistic version and wanting to change, you know, the, the tone of Washington, as he said. But, um, you know, this is the kind of thing that's, you know, uh, people are going to, ha- a lot of people are going to have to leave Washington and, and, and a new generation of people who are interested in doing things way differently are going to have to come in for that tone to change. I think it's, it's not going to. Well, yeah, I agree. And just like, you know, I, I simply, as a person who is semi like, I like to get things, I love the process, but I also like the end result being something that's like a thing. Yes. And, to watch them vote against things that they've voted for in the past. It's insane. It feels like such a fuck you <laughs> and such a I don't care. And I'm just like, you know what? I can't respect you anymore. Uh, you know, I uh, try agreed. to be yeah. at least I, I try not to be in my comedy. Like sometimes I'm snarky with people who I think just are not worth the elevation of conversation. Yes. But like, I really like to do political humor that, like asks a question or brings up something that like furthers the dialogue. Yep. Yep. Is it like this? How, how can this be if this is, you yep. know, and then kind of phrase it however you do. Right. Because, you know, but sometimes you can't because the people are just douchey. But like, I've never understood when people like are just like comedians and then they'll just talk, you know, Boehner's orange or whatever. It's like, you know what? That's not a political joke. That's a joke about any one famous who you're pointing out what they look like. Yeah. Like you're wasting my time. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. It's fascinating. <laughs> really true. I know. Is. It's, and, well, and I, it's, you know, and I'm exci- it's exciting too right now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have a little hope right now. I, I feel like at least something is shifting, you know, even if it's just uh, the seasons. <laughs> well, I feel like it's shifting. I mean, I see, you know, more than ever, you know, I'm kind of this crazy one man band when I do my shows and I do all my own little promotion and through Twitter and Facebook and all this stuff. And, you know, with, are you there? Uh huh. Oh, um, all of a sudden it felt like you were there. It felt like I had lost my connection. I'm, I'm here um, for you, honey. Yeah. And so Facebook and Twitter and all this stuff and people come out in droves and Planned Parenthood too, you know, they come out. You know, when I go to Cincinnati, which is, you know, where the where the right to life movement launched itself mm. and there's no press of any kind and 250 people show up at a cabaret for a benefit for Planned Parenthood, you know, there's pockets of people and they're out there and they're gathering. Yes. And that's what's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Agreed. Um, we've just got a few minutes here. I know you just finished your book. Did you land on a title yet for it? I did, and I can't say what it is yet. There will be an announcement, but I can't say what it is. And when, when But it's coming out in May. In May of next year. Yes. Okay, cool. I can't wait. Yeah, so we, and the book touches on a lot of the stuff that we talked about uh, tonight, just, you know, the sort of finding your voice and, and, you know, when there's not a lot of support and role models and guidance and mentors, how you do that and the frustration of, um, you know, sort of transitioning to wanting to have a bigger voice than just, telling jokes and how all that plays out. It's uh, pretty, it's, it's a, it was an interesting process for sure. Well, maybe um, next year you and, and I and a couple other women that I'm thinking about in my head right now, like Katie Goodman and stuff, we should get together and maybe do like a leadership 
and women's leadership type of thing or something. And, uh, you know, oh, I'd love it. Wouldn't that be cool? Like a whole weekend where we could do seminars and workshops and panels and it'd be fun. Right. Okay. I would think it would be really fun. I think that, you know, those things don't happen enough. And I think it would be really, really awesome. Yeah. And I think it would be fun to bring, you know, women from, you know, our kind of circle who, who do performance and stuff like that into this other realm and kind of have this crossover. I think, I think it would be really fun. That would be a great idea. I'm going to, I'm going to sleep on that a little bit. Well, Liz, darling, with you. thank you so much for being here. It was a true pleasure. Kelly, to it was a gas. I thought I forgot that we were like doing a podcast. I just felt like we were rapping. Oh, well, you know what? It's that's how I do it here. <laughs> it's so great. It was so amazing talking to you. And I don't see enough of you. And I'm sorry that we almost got to do it live. So I'm sorry that we didn't get to. But, uh, I know. But um, I might be out there in November. And if I do, of course, we'll be hanging. Constantly. Absolutely. We'll, we'll see each other. And I may be in New York soon, too. So we'll hang out. There oh, yay. Too. Yes, totally. Fantastic. All right, darling. Well, thank you so much. And you have a beautiful evening. And uh, keep fighting the good fight, girl. Thanks, babe. You too. All right. Bye. Bye. So everyone, uh, that was Liz Winstead and, uh, wow, we went to all sorts of places tonight. That was really fun. And, uh, yeah, I would love to do something, something with her, some sort of interesting leadership thing. I, you know, just hang out with some groovy women and, and do some trust exercises. We can all fall into each other's arms. It'll be really nice. <laughs> anyway, uh, I just want to, um, Thank you all for being here live. Whoever was listening live tonight, thank you so much. And of course, thank you all who subscribe to me, whether it's on Stitcher or the RSS feed or iTunes. Tell your friends, keep on subscribing. I think when I switched over to Smodcast, there was a little glitch of something. I don't know if you're missing your subscription. Come on back aboard. We'd love to have you. And if you do subscribe and enjoy my show, I'd love a rate and a review on iTunes. That would be awesome. I would just, you know, I think my ego would be so fulfilled if I could finally get on that new and fucking noteworthy list. <laughs> and, uh, and I want to thank Matt Cohen who comes to my house here with a, um, uh, a suitcase full of equipment. And then it turns into an instant podcast studio. Uh, I've got the, a picture of it. I'm going to send it out in a minute of, of all the, of all the stuff up. I'll send it out on Twitter and uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm Kelly under slash Carlin. And, uh, of course you can find me on Facebook and just a couple announcements, some cool things happening. We now have something called Car uh, Carlin's Corner on X Sirius XM. It's channel 400. You can get to it online. And if you've got the new, a new car or a new device that's come out, I think in the next month, uh, you'll be able to hear it. And that's 24 seven George Carlin material. We're playing oldies, new stuff, you know, not new stuff, but you know what I mean? And then sometime, I think in December, I'm going to have my own show on there called the Kelly Carlin show. And it'll probably be once a month and I'll get to do some groovy stuff there. My uncle Patrick's going to have a show on there too. And also if you're in the San Francisco Bay area, I'm going to be taking my solo show, a Carlin home companion where I play videos of my dad and tell life, uh, tell life, tell family stories uh, to the audience. It's a solo show. It's a one woman show. Actually, it's not a one woman show because my dad's on stage with me too. In some ways, I will be at the uh, Throckmorton, the one four two Throckmorton theater in Mill Valley on Sunday, November 13th. Uh, the tickets will be available in the next few days. We're just kind of getting it organized with them. Uh, but save the date, November 13th, Throckmorton. So if you're in the San Francisco Bay area, please come and see me and it would be really fun to meet you. 
And uh, if you have any music for me, any royalty-free music or any feedback, certainly about my show, you can reach me at WFADradio at gmail.com. I I play all royalty-free music here. And if you've got something cool that you uh, do or play or have a friend who's got something cool, send it along to me and we will arrange that. Uh, Tonight, I believe we're going to close the show with my Captain Danger song, right? Is that what we're doing, Matt, called Hollywood Douchebag? No, what are we closing the show with? I wrote... Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Oh, this is perfect. We're going to end the show with Katie Goodman, who is someone who I would love to bring into this women's leadership thing with Liz. Uh, she's got a great song, and I've played it on here before. I'm sure you've heard it, called I Didn't Fuck It Up. Enjoy. Have a beautiful week. Love you all. There's never been a time There's never been a time There's never been a time As fucked up as this As fucked up as this I didn't fuck it up But they, whoever they are, they fucked it up Now it's fucked up I can't unfuck it up You probably can't unfuck it up And if we're counting on them to unfuck it up then we're all fucked. Okay, now here's where you come in. You don't have to sing. Just turn to the person next to you and ask them nicely. Did you fuck it up? Go on, ask them. How about you? Did you fuck it up? Now sit back and look at them and say, because you look like someone who could have fucked it up. Now it's fucked up. Now let's pick ourselves up off the floor and create a tone of camaraderie and ask, could you help unfuck it up? And then say, are you really so fucking busy? You can't take one fucking minute to help unfuck it up. Then lose the righteous asshole attitude and take a breath and say, Cause I'm willing to pick one thing to help unfuck it up. Won't you join me? Oh, that's better. Does it feel better? Yeah, feeling the love. The problem is that you just can't help feeling bitter that it's fucked up to begin with. You just go round and round like this. Okay, back with me now. Didn't fuck it up. Let it out. Come on. You know you feel it. You probably didn't fuck it up. You don't have to believe it. Just go with it for now. But they, that's right, shift the blame. They fucked it up. Now it's fucked up. That's right. Okay. Yeah, you're clapping, but 
problem is deep down inside you're feeling depressed and hopeless, right? We're just gonna change the world. What the hell happened? Okay, I got it. We're gonna come together for this one. I need your help. We're gonna fill this room up with love and inspiration, and it won't last past the time you leave here tonight, but everybody on this side. Fuck it up. Okay, real loud and proud. Let's all unfuck it up. Now you gotta keep going without me when I leave you. Here we go. Let's all unfuck it up. Doesn't that feel good? Keep it rolling. Now over here, we have a special part. It's a little repetitive, but it's fucked, it's fucked, it's fucked, it's fucked, it's fucked, it's fucked. It's fucked, it's fucked, it's fucked, it's fucked. Can you do that? It's fucked, it's fucked. Commit already. I wanna be an unfucker. I wanna be an unfucker. That's right. It's fucked, it's fucked, it's fucked, it's fucked, it's fucked. Oh, yeah, really loud. One more time with all your heart now.